0: Father God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ. That your love continues for us and that by your Holy Spirit you welcome us into your presence. Make us a holy people, Lord, devoted to your will. Come, Holy Spirit, and transform us. Wash away all that is not of you that all that may be left is Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. It's good to be back. Last week I was at St. Augustine's church in Witten. Uh, They've they not, not got a vicar at the moment, so we're going to help them out every now and then, as we seem to have clergy law here, which is lovely. Um, so we're, we're going to try and help out some neighbouring churches when they're, their vicars are moving on, they're in, in, in vacancy. Um, but today I'm back, we're going to launch a series on looking at vision and values. Uh, behind the scenes in this season, um, in September, we, the church looks at where we're going to go in the next few years. What's, where is God leading us? And we're going to start teaching about the values that are going to be the basis of that. And later this week, the, um, the staff team, and the ministerial team will look at, at what God might be calling us based on these, these, these va- values and values. Uh, At the end of the week on Saturday, the PCC will look at at what God's calling us to do as well. And then I'll try and pull that all together and we'll come up with what's called a mission action plan, which is as exciting as it sounds. Um, But I've been listening lots over the past few years about what our values are, and I've decided to kind of group them together. Uh, using the words the creed. Now the creed is something that's recited in churches around the world. It's not just a new song written by Hillsong that we'll sing in the moment, but it's a eight, at least 18 centuries old um, statement of what the church believes. It's the it's the core and the root of what the church believes. When I first started um, um, in ministry, I, we were recruiting a a placement youth pastor, someone who would who would um, who would come and work alongside me, I was the youth pastor, and they, they would train. And the training college that they were going to go to um, had to ask a question that said, are you a Christian organisation? Because some people work for churches, some people might work for something like the YMCA or, or parachurch. They wanted to ask the question which is, are you a Christian? And the, the way they, they worded the question is, do you subscribe to the Apostles' Creed?" The Apostles' Creed being this foundational statement of what the Christian faith is. It declares that God is Father, God is Son in Jesus Christ, and God is Holy Spirit. And then right at the end, it starts it says, we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That's how it defines the church. Holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we're going to use those three terms to explore what values we have as a church and what that might call us to do in the future. Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic. Holy means to be set apart for God and God alone. And we'll explore that today. Um, Catholic means, it's not Roman Catholic, it doesn't mean more candles and and the vicar dressing up in different different outfits. It means that Catholic means we're a universal church. We understand the church isn't just St. Mary's Hampton. That actually, as we've seen here, we join together with the praises and worship of a church throughout the world. We also understand that we're not the one true church of Christ. We're not the, we're not the church that's got it right, and everyone else has got it wrong. That there's, there's a humility in saying we're a Catholic church, that, that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and then we're apostolic. We understand that we stand in the same tradition as Peter. Peter that Jesus passed the faith on to Peter, and Peter passed it on to to other people, to Timothy, and such. like, And then that was passed on again and again and again. And we stand in a line of faith that's been passed on from the very time of Jesus. And we have a responsibility to pass our faith on. To pass our faith on to, to the next generation. So each week, uh, next six weeks, we go two weeks on, on what it means to be a holy church, two weeks what it means to be a Catholic church, two weeks on what it means to be an apostolic church. Um, we've got some, um, some desk preachers. So next week, uh, it's not a death preacher, but Alan's going to explore what I, uh, idols are. Uh, we've got a guy called Jamie Feynman coming to talk about, um, about what it means to be a church without borders, a, a church that looks internationally. He used to work for tier fund and he's now a director of a a, a international justice kind of project Uh, and then we've got this guy called David Lloyd so he's going to come and talk about apostolic I I think he runs a a load of gyms (laughs) and a pub yes (laughs) and I hear he used to be the curate here Um, so that's what we're going to do in the next few weeks does that make sense wow no maybe not (laughs) does that make sense Yes. yes hurrah uh, so we don't explore what it means to be a holy church. We've taken this text in Matthew 22 as, as, our, as, our, as a basis here. Um, in this text, the religious leaders have been challenging Jesus. Jesus has told some parables, and the religious leaders come and, and question him off the back of these parables. And there's two groups that, um, that keep taking it turns. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And I'm going to take them in reverse order to, to what the passage said. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees love the law. They love the rules that come from the Old Testament. And they're popular. People in Jerusalem, they love the Pharisees. They love to follow the Pharisees. Because actually, it turns out, that, you see this, people like black and white. They like to be told, "Do this, don't do that." It comes; it, it's a really easy way to be popular. They believed the Pharisees that God was active in the world, that God would beckon people into eternal life, and so the logic goes: if God is active and God is present and God is going to be the judge, we better follow His rules. We better stick to what He says. And then the Pharisees come to Him, come to Jesus, and say. What is the greatest commandment? I think when we read it, we sometimes feel that's quite an aggressive question, don't we? Wait, what's the greatest commandment? Come on. There's 600-odd commandments in the Old Testament. Which one? Come on, which, tell, me, tell me which one. But actually, it was a standard question to ask rabbis. It's actually how the rabbis would define themselves. And actually, the answer that Jesus gives is quite a, a bland answer, if I could be so bold. Uh, There was another rabbi at the time, someone who really started and founded the Pharisees' group called Hillel. And Hillel has a man who comes to him. And Hillel was known for long, long torts. I'm sure you don't know what that's about. But a man comes to Hillel and says, look, will you just tell me what the greatest commandment is whilst I stand on one foot? (laughs) Because I don't have time to listen to the whole lot. And Hillel says... um, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. And Hillel died just before Jesus started his ministry. He was asked what the grace commandment was. And he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. And Jesus is asked the same question. And Jesus uh, uses a verse in the Old Testament, uh, which is known as the Shema. Now the Shema was one of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament. It was recited twice daily by Israelites. There was a tradition that you would take a newborn baby and you would whisper into the baby's ear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. You'd whisper the Shema in the baby's ear. Actually, um, I might have told you this before, but when my children were born, I, I did the same thing. I, I picked them up, and the first thing that I said to both my children was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. That's the first thing that I said to them. It's not the first thing they heard. The first thing they heard was, It's a girl, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> So when Jesus says this, it's not a surprise. And his second commandment he adds without being asked is love your neighbor as yourself. But he makes it about not about regulations. The focus is about love. When you compare Jesus' answer to Hillel's, Hillel being what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. It sounds very similar to love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't it? But the focus is in a slightly different place. The focus is on love. The focus is on the purpose behind the rules. Obedience to the law is not about fulfilling an obligation to God but allowing us to receive his love. Allowing us to express his love. Jesus turns the Pharisees saying obey the law because you must be obliged to God about being about the root cause, that it's about love. When I started theology, uh, when I started studying theology, a very a brilliant lecturer of mine who just cut every corner you've ever seen um, said something really wise. He said, when you're reading a passage in the Bible, a passage from the Gospel particularly, look at the chapter number. So it tells you where it falls in the story. This, this reading from Matthew chapter 22, there's about four people paying attention. 22, it comes towards the end of Matthew. It comes on the path towards the cross. It comes as Jesus starts to approach the crucifixion. It comes when love stops being just a passing feeling, a romantic expression, just a a general, I feel quite lovey-dovey today. But we're on the way to the cross here where love becomes sacrificial, where love becomes blood and weeping and death and victory, where love is made real, where our Saviour lays aside all his divinity to the point of death and even death on the cross that we may receive life, that we may know what love is. This is our greatest commandment that we should love God with everything we have. Our desires, our motivations are to be for God, because that's what we saw in Jesus, that Jesus loved us so much that he gave everything. And we are called then to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. It says something slightly different in that passage, but that's what we say in the liturgy. That's what teed into my head. We as be a holy people, people who love God with all that we have. Holiness means to be set apart from, for God. I think some people think that when I say holiness, what I mean is moral behaviour. Righteousness for getting it right. But that's not holiness. Our righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. Our righteousness does not come from us getting it, getting it right or living moral lives. Do try and live a moral life, that's a good thing. But don't rest that in your salvation. Holiness is about setting yourself apart for God, for being for God alone. I'll give you an example. I've been married for 11 and a half years now. The half's important, I'm counting. Uh, we have Pat Stanley for celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary. Well done, Barbara. In my married life, we share pretty much everything. Most, you know, I don't go into the kitchen and say, that's my glass or that's my cup. It's just whoever's. There's, there are some, there's, there's a cup that says, world's greatest mum, and I, I don't tend to drink out that one, but if it was the last one left, I would do. There are some things, that, but there's what I own and what my wife owns, There's there's... There's, there's no real divide. Perhaps around clothing, but that's a bit, we won't go into that. But just generally, everything is, everything is shared, doesn't it? Apart from my toothbrush. My toothbrush is my toothbrush. I don't share my toothbrush. My toothbrush is holy. It's set apart for me. Now, I've used this example in youth groups before, and there's always one young person who goes, I share my toothbrush with my sister. Or I share. That's weird. If you do that, <laughs> prayer ministry is available afterwards. But yeah, my toothbrush is mine and mine alone. No one else is allowed to use my toothbrush. It's holy. And you are God's toothbrush. You are holy towards God. You are called to be holy for God that your possessions don't own you. What you do doesn't own you. Your vocation doesn't own you. Your family doesn't own you. Nothing else owns you. You're not to be used for that by by those things for their purposes. You're to be used by God for his purpose. Yes, God may call you to be a dentist. Keep the toothbrush thing going. Or a doctor or whatever it is. Or, you know, whatever it is you might be called to do those things by God but it comes from roots is that you belong to God that you can trust him that he is yours and yours alone that you are he's and he's alone, sorry you are he's and he's alone and this is because he has died for us he has shown what love is he didn't hold anything back he didn't say, I'll go to the cross, and I'll suffer a bit, and that's enough. He went to the cross and said, it is finished, and you are mine. Let's unpack this a bit further by using the other example. The other example is the Sadducees. Before the Pharisees challenged him, the Sadducees come to Jesus with this quite complex complex thing about if you marry someone they die, Um, the law of Moses says you need to marry their brother in order that the the children are looked after, it turns out it says in the law of Moses but then you marry someone else and you marry another brother and eventually you have been married to seven brothers, when eternity comes, who who, who are you going to be married to? And you have to understand here, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection the Sadducees didn't believe in, in eternal life They were quite a middle-class, powerful group of people who owned the temple. They were were in charge of the religious functions of the city. And they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were good and religious people. They lived decent lives. They believed in God. They believed in their calling to do God's work here on earth. But for them, God was transcendent and distant. uh, It was deism, if I use a technical term. God didn't act for them. Josephus says they take away all fate. All their actions are of their own power. They didn't believe in the providence of God. They didn't believe that God would act in their lives. Do you believe that God acts in your life? This is a very easy trap to fall into. You see it all over churches. People who are good and they're religious and they do the right thing. They sometimes run the religious institutions but they don't believe that God acts. And by extension, they don't believe that God will raise the dead at the end. And so they ask this question about how they order family. Actually, um, Elizabeth, do we have the link, um, where the response that says... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because it shows how much it it jars. If you're following your Bible, you should be able to see it. They ask this complicated question about the resurrection. Then, out of the... Oh dear, we've got to get... We need a new system, don't we? Yes, we need a new system. We need to upgrade this. And out of the blue, Jesus says... It says, I am the God of Abraham... Bear with me. Why you shouldn't rely on technology, eh? As for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what is said to said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's God of the dead, but not but he's not God of the dead, but of the living. That doesn't what's he going on about? What's the resurrection got to do with, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? The Israelites would have heard that, because what Jesus there is quoting what is said to Moses when Moses sees the burning bush. We know that story, don't we? Moses doesn't know what to do about the fact the Israelites are in slavery. He comes and he meets this burning bush, and he says, take your shoes off your unholy ground. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right, guys, I think, we, I think we can give up on it now. Um, he says that. So G, In the Bible here, it's pointing towards the story of Exodus. Talk, it's pointed towards that time that Moses takes off his shoes at the burning bush. It's reminding them that when they're in the presence of Jesus, they're in the presence of God that Jesus is going to lead them to a new freedom, that God is about to act in their midst. The same God who saved the Israelites is about to save them. As God raised the Israelites from slavery, from the Egyptians, so will he bring us to a new freedom by his resurrection. Do we really believe Guys, can we just blend that out now, please? It's, it's, it's kind of a bit more distracting. Can we blunt that out? Thank you. Um, I've, lost my, I've lost my train of thought. Bear with me. God, so the question about the Pharisees, the question of the Sadducees, sorry, is that what's going to happen in the resurrection? What's going to happen? How will my family be ordered? How will, how will my life look? And Jesus' response points to Exodus, that people were, slave from slavery, people were saved from slavery, lifted out from Egypt, and so will you be saved completely. The resurrection will overturn everything you know. The resurrection is more powerful than what you can imagine now. Their lack of belief, the Sadducees' lack of a belief in the resurrection makes God secondary in their life. The same power that rose Christ from the grave lives in us now. We can ignore it, but if we ignore it, we forget that God will provide and God will make things right now. God is bigger than all other things in your life. You can trust him to provide. Part of holiness is making sure we put God completely, utterly in front of everything else in our life. Because we know that He is bigger than it. If God can save the Israelites from Pharaoh, if God can defeat the grave, then He can provide for your family. He can provide for your job, He can provide for your finances. We need to start putting God in front of those things, rather than let, let keeping it a little bit back for him. I see it in, in clergy all the time yeah, yeah, I'll follow God, but my children's school year finishes, the children finish school in two years' time, so I'll wait two more years. Do you not believe that God can provide your children's schooling? Oh, but what about my job? What about my finances? God will provide for your finances. I will not tell you the the, the outrageous steps we've taken. We have no idea on how we're going to fund it, and somehow God comes through. Where is God in the list of priorities in your life? I think I may have told this story before, but when we did marriage prep 12 years ago, we were asked to list the top five priorities in our life. And Kyle was very diligent. Number one, God. Number two, family. Number three, church. Number four, whatever it is. I'm a little bit of a rebel. I wrote one, Jesus. And I crossed out the next four. (laughs) Because Jesus will look after the other ones. I want to be so focused on Jesus that the other things fall away. Yes, they are important. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not demoting them. But what I'm trying to do is promote Jesus to be better than them all. Because the Sadducees' question underneath it is like, "What's going to happen to our families when when the resurrection happens?" I don't know, but I trust in the resurrection of God enough that He will be good in it. And actually what we see in these two questions is the cross and resurrection. The cross means that we can trust that God's love is real and tangible. That he really does call us to be a holy people. And resurrection means we can cast off our idols and trust that God is bigger than them all, that God is more powerful, that God has them all in the hands. More of that next week, I'm sure, Alan. Do we put God first, as individuals, as a community, as a church, and how do we do that more? Should we stand and pray? Father God, send your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak through my ramblings. Speak into our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, show us those parts of our life that we hold back from you. those parts of our life that have been we've built a wall around we've said God you can have it all apart from that little bit come Holy Spirit and calm, Holy Spirit for those of us who have never desire to be a holy people But for us, religion was something we just went along with. We're here because of some obligation, but today you want to give everything to Jesus. You want to accept the gift that was given at the cross. A full and complete love and acceptance. Come Holy Spirit, that we may know the love of Christ now. Fall on this place. We see in our next son if, um, if anyone wants prayer, if you want to give your life more fully to the cross of Christ, to so know his love, go to the back and someone will pray for you. If you want to cast off an idol, if you want to live more fully for his resurrection, go to the back and someone will pray for you. Or turn to someone who looks Jesusy at the end and say, please pray for me. Amen.